Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. I am delighted to replay one of my favorite episodes of The Soul of a Nation, featuring Dr. Francis Collins, talking about the connection between faith and science and how the faith community can help with messaging about COVID-19. This is especially timely again now, given widespread efforts to vaccinate more Americans and send vaccines globally to those with less access all over the world. I will testify that this man has a great deal of both scientific and spiritual curiosity, and he's a friend that I'm feeling very, very blessed to have with us today at a time like this. So, Francis, let's start here. How How is your spirit these days? Well, Jim, what a great question to start off our conversation. And it's really a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you as part of this podcast and hopefully provide some information and maybe even some spiritual reflections and comfort between the two of us who have been friends for many years. My spirit is at times feeling a little frayed. I'll be honest, it's now been more than a year that my focus has had to be almost entirely on this worst pandemic in 103 years of COVID-19. I'm continuing to do everything I can to try to steer this largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, the National Institutes of Health, in the direction of making all the discoveries that are necessary for vaccines, for therapeutics, for new diagnostic tests. And with this sense every day that it matters, that we are losing people at a terribly tragic rate, something like 3,000 people losing their lives every day. And so you do have this sense that every decision carries with it a particularly heavy weight of responsibility. I have wonderful people I can work with who are working like me 90 hours a week and not complaining about it just because this is so completely critical uh, for the future of our world. And we can look back over those 12 months and say, scientifically, an awful lot of progress has been made. Unprecedented progress has been made, in fact. But I wish it was even faster. And so, yes, I do have days where my spirit feels a little bit like it's gotten beaten up. But I do also remember that that's not the spirit that I should be embracing as a follower of Jesus. And I have on my wall a variety of scriptures that I remember to look at at times like this, one of which is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7, a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So, Jim, that's the spirit I aspire to and occasionally maybe even uh, feel it. Um, uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for that experience. But it, it has been quite an experience over this incredibly challenging year of facing something that none of us expected was going to be part of our daily experience. And here we are. Indeed. You know, that Timothy text, I think, is so uh, so much as a, a scripture for our time. The spirit of fear is in everything. Our politics, our civil discourse, our certainly conversations about this pandemic. And 
And Timothy's saying, no, uh, there are things to be afraid of, for sure, but not living, not living in a spirit of fear. So I'm glad you raised that text for us here at the beginning. Now, Francis, you recently addressed a group of faith leaders and spoke to us about the crucial relationship between faith and science. It was uh, really actually a wonderful sermon and a conversation. So let's start there. Why is there no contradiction between faith and science, but instead, as you have shown in your own life, a deep integration and harmony between the two? And how has the COVID pandemic reaffirmed all of that for you? Well, I didn't always think that there was harmony. I was not raised in a family where faith was considered very relevant, and I slipped into an agnostic view. And then ultimately, as a graduate student in chemistry, I was an atheist. As a medical student after that, though, I had to come to grips with what exactly to make of suffering and sitting at the bedside of people whose lives were approaching an end, trying to imagine myself in that situation and realizing I hadn't given any real thought at all (laughs) to the really important questions like, is there a God and why am I here? And what happens after you die? And, you know, why is there something instead of nothing? And all, all of those questions that I'd avoided. And it took a couple of years of then deeply digging into that for me to realize that actually atheism was not going to do. And that was the assertion of a universal negative that scientists aren't supposed to embrace. And to my surprise, uh, perhaps a bit like C.S. Lewis, who described himself as a reluctant convert, I was also, but ultimately embraced the fact that the evidence in favor of God's creative power having made the universe possible and the evidence that that God cares about me through arguments like the moral law became overwhelming. And also the evidence that I needed a way to be able to approach a holy God in what I knew was my own sinfulness. And there I finally understood the meaning of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the resurrection. And I became a Christian at age 27. People said to me at the time, Jim, okay, this isn't going to work. You're a scientist. You're studying DNA for heaven's sake. Uh, Do you realize your head is going to explode because there's going to be an immediate collision between what you're learning in the lab and what you're reading in the Bible? And it never happened. And to this day, it hasn't happened. I embrace uh, the Francis Bacon view that God gave us two books, uh, the book of God's words, the Bible, which I try to read every morning, and the book of God's works, which is nature. And which as a scientist, I have the incredible privilege of being able to explore and make discoveries and understand its beauty and its complexity. And if those are both God's books, how could they be in conflict? And if we think there's a conflict, maybe it's not God's books that's the problem. It's our interpretation of them. And we can certainly point to things of that sort. So through all of that, I have never now in the last 43 years (laughs) encountered a circumstance where I felt there was really a problem between what I know as a serious follower of Jesus who takes the Bible with great seriousness and what I know as a scientist in terms of looking at the data. And it breaks my heart that there is so much of a sense, particularly in the United States of America, that these worldviews just 
are locked in some sort of irreconcilable conflict and they will never be able to get along. People who are worried about that, I'd encourage them to look at a website for a foundation that I started before I became NIH director and then had to step away from called BioLogos, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, basically a word I made up, which is bios through logos, life through God speaking the word. And there you will find incredibly interesting discussions amongst people who are serious believers and serious scientists about exactly how the harmony can be discovered. And it is joyful uh, to be able to see that. And certainly here now, in the face of COVID, we need every bit of rigorous science and creativity from all of those bright brains in the world to help us figure out how to combat this really awful coronavirus. But we also can't go through this experience without having it affect us uh, spiritually. And I think the most effective way to try to manage a circumstance like this is to bring both of those worldviews completely together in the mind of individuals and figure out how to use both of those sets of skills and talents to be able to get through this. God's two books. I love, love, love that. Tell me why you think this, this narrative, this false narrative, particularly in the American context, as you say, has come up about the conflict between science and faith. What's behind that? Why has that happened? And why here in America? Yeah, that's a really puzzling, isn't it? Uh, people really want to sort of look at the history here. I might want to pick up a book by Ron Numbers called The Creationists because it kind of walks through how this came about. There was already some distrust of science beginning to brew in the U.S. before Darwin came along with The Origin of Species, but that certainly set it off. Although one should notice that when evolution was first proposed by Darwin, uh, most of the leaders in the American church embraced it. <laughs> they said, oh, this is wonderful. We now have an insight that we didn't have before in terms of how God created this marvelous complexity and beauty of living things on our planet. This is great. But as things went on, there was uh, a tendency perhaps uh, for some parts of the church to become more and more liberal in their view. And that was somehow attached uh, to the idea that this was science beginning to contaminate the rigor of faith. Uh, the fundamentalism began to appear in the early part of the 20th century. And then we had the Scopes trial, which was just an incredibly polarizing circumstance where it was made very clear in that trial to anybody looking that either you had to be on the side of biblical truth, namely 24-hour, seven-day creation, or you had to be on the side of science that said, evolution was true, and there was no way of resolving those two. And unfortunately, we're almost 100 years after that, and that lingers still and has been probably propagated far too often from atheistic scientists on the one hand who like to use science as a club over people that they think are weak in the head because they're believers, and on the other hand, used by fundamentalists, uh, perhaps preaching from the pulpit to say you shouldn't trust science because they're all really all, all out to destroy your faith. It's heartbreaking. And most people, I don't think, associate themselves with either of those extremes, but they haven't necessarily found a lot of opportunities to discover the harmony. And one of my small goals here since I began writing about this was to try to put out there that this is an unnecessary conflict. And 
in the Templeton Prize address that I gave back last fall, uh, tried to lay out some of those issues. But we are still <clears throat> in a tough spot here, if you ask. In most polls of Americans, do science and faith have anything in common? Can they get along? You'll encounter a lot of skepticism, which is hurting us uh, as individuals, as families, as communities, and as a country. I heard that Templeton dress. Could you just tell our listeners where to find that? Because that really speaks to the heart of this. Yeah, I think if you just go to Google and punch in Templeton Prize, Francis Collins, uh, it will come right up. It's there. Okay. Now, you've taken it from both sides on this big yes. debate, right? <laughs> That's what happens when you try to claim that there's a harmony in the middle and other people are invested in that not being so. <laughs> the other thing that strikes me in your story, and I've heard you speak to before, is what you call these bedside conversations you had as a young doctor. How did those bedside conversations with very different kinds of people, how did that open up this whole new world for you? Well, it was powerful indeed. And it's one of those things, if somebody had told me that was going to change the entire course of my life, I would have really marveled at how that could be. Uh, one in particular that happened when I was a medical student. Um, you know, when you're a third year medical student, you're out there on the hospital wards, you're assigned to take care of patients. You're pretty insecure about whether you know what you're doing. Uh, your patients sometimes think you're a real doctor and you're really not quite there yet. Uh, and you develop these relationships and you're warned not to take them too seriously and not to get emotionally involved with patients, but it's pretty hard not to. I had a wonderful elderly woman who was uh, my patient who had terrible cardiac disease and was having these episodes of just absolutely crushing chest pain. Um, and our medicines were not helping her much. And there really wasn't much we had to offer. And she would tell me as she was going through these experiences uh, that she understood uh, that our medicine had some uh, gaps here and probably weren't going to be able to save her life. But Jesus was the rock that she was able to stand on. And she knew through prayer she was going to be fine. And I was marveling at that. And one afternoon after such an episode, which had been pretty hard to watch because I really identified this woman with my grandmother a lot, uh, she sort of came back from it and again said, you know, my prayer got me through and then just turned to me in this simple North Carolina question. So, doctor, I've told you about my faith, but you never say anything. What do you believe? Isn't that amazing? Four words. What do you believe? Just like uh, an absolute arrow to the heart, because <laughs> I realize that's the most important question I've ever been asked, even though I'm now a PhD and partway through <laughs> medical training. I've never been asked a question that mattered more than that one, and I have absolutely no answer. No. I've never really given enough thought to this to be able to say anything except, well, I'm not really sure. And that's what I said. And I bolted out of the room feeling intensely uncomfortable. And the discomfort remained and then seemed to require some action. And that started me down this two-year journey of trying to find out why do believers believe? This elderly woman of faith asked you a question that changed the rest of your life. Yes. Well, uh, we all have these questions for you uh, and Dr. Fauci and the others that we trust. Tell us about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic here in the U.S. 
and around the world. And what is most important for our listeners to know? Currently, there are distribution efforts underway for Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. I'll tell our listeners, I just got my first vaccine today, a Pfizer vaccine an hour ago from Kaiser. I came up on the list. Can you share about uh, the these vaccines and the other vaccines now under development? Well, as I said a minute ago, the progress scientifically in vaccine development has been absolutely unprecedented and breathtaking. And yet it's been done in a fashion that no corners were cut about safety and effectiveness. In the past, the timetable between identifying some new threat of an infectious organism and having a vaccine that was ready to administer to hundreds of thousands or millions of people tended to run about 10 years. In this instance, it took 11 months. And that was in part because of some new scientific advances that made the front end of vaccine development a whole lot quicker and more efficient than it could have been before. And it was also just an incredibly organized team effort uh, between the NIH, which I have the privilege uh, of directing, and particularly our Vaccine Research Center, as well as companies, small and large, uh, that basically dropped everything uh, to bring all of their skills to to bear on this, as well as the resources, which came through something called Operation Warp Speed, to be able not only to run very large-scale trials, 30,000 people at least in each one of these vaccine trials, but also to start manufacturing doses, even before it was clear that the vaccine was going to work, because you didn't want to have a long gap after a successful trial to wait while you built a factory and finally had some doses to give people. That was what you call at-risk manufacturing. If the vaccine had failed, those doses would have been thrown out, but you didn't want to have that long gap. All of those things pretty unprecedented. That's how we got there by December with both the Pfizer vaccine that you just got and the Moderna vaccine, which I've had, receiving their emergency use authorization from the FDA in a very rigorous uh, approach and one which is entirely transparent and public. Anybody who wanted to see the data upon which that conclusion was based, it was posted on the internet. And you could look at every bit of the details of what happened to those 30,000 heroes who took part in those trials and in terms of whether they were protected against infection by having the vaccine compared to those who got the placebo. And they didn't know whether they got the real thing or the placebo. And you could see 94, 95% protection from both of these vaccines, which I have to say, uh, Tony Fauci and I would speculate back in you know August, September as the trials were going, well, what would be a good result? And I think most of us who knew a fair amount about vaccines would have said, well, let's just hope we get maybe 60%, maybe, maybe 70, but maybe that's a little too ambitious, too optimistic. And it was 95%. So that's fantastic. That is the good news here. Of course, we're troubled that at the moment. We don't have enough doses, even though that at-risk manufacturing was done. And as of now, more than 60 million doses have been distributed, and more than half of those have gone into people's arms, like yours and mine. Uh, We still are not at the place where we'd like to be for all the people who are ready for the vaccine uh, to get that to happen. On top of that, and this is a cloud that we didn't really expect on the horizon, but now it's there and we're not quite sure how serious it will be. This virus is changing over time. 
it's developing these new variants in places like the United Kingdom and Brazil and South Africa, which don't make the vaccine no longer valuable, but it's a little less effective against these new variants than against what we started with. So we have to watch that carefully and maybe be prepared if necessary uh, to redesign the vaccine very quickly, which we can do now pretty quickly because of the technology and give people a booster uh, for something that comes along later for which the current vaccine may not be quite as protective. We're not ready to go there yet. Right now it's looking pretty good, but I think we have to think about that. So is there, there a vaccine race against the variants? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. I sort of imagined this as a, a, a race on a racetrack. Uh, and in lane one, <laughs> you've got this coronavirus with its spiky proteins that are now very familiar to everybody on the surface. And its particular skill is as it's running the race is to kind of upgrade itself as far as its sneakers and its speed. And we, the human race, <laughs> are in the other lane uh, trying to outdistance it. And our success at that is going to happen if we get everybody vaccinated as quickly as possible in order to just reduce the overall population of these viruses that are out there trying to mutate. So we've got work to do, and it's not just up to the scientists. It's up to all of us to try to be sure we're doing all those things to try to knock this pandemic back. And that means getting vaccinated as soon as you have the chance to do so, but also using those public health measures that we know work, wearing masks, probably double masks or better, keeping your distance six feet, not gathering indoors, especially without masks, because that's where the real trouble happens. And people are so tired of hearing those recommendations. When I say them, I can just imagine people cringing. But it is, in fact, what we have to do. And this is the time to double down on those things in order to try to keep these new variants from being even more numerous. You know, uh, we're hearing all these these rumors and fears, back to the fear question about various vaccines. I know you were at a recent press conference for the J&J, Johnson & Johnson new vaccine coming out. And then I was in a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Leanna Wynn, who is an amazing doctor. She serves poor clients, mostly African-Americans. She says who are all Baptists and Hispanic or Catholic. And, and they're already hearing these rumors about the P&J, the new one will be a vaccine, a new vaccination that's less effective than when we dumped on minority marginal communities and these kinds. And she says, that's not true, but there's all these rumors going on. So how do, how do we deal with these rumors and these, these myths and these fears out there, like the, the new J and J vaccine, which you helped to uh, speak to when it was uh, coming out just uh, a few weeks ago. It is a serious challenge uh, to try to get the accurate information in front of people when there's so many other sources of disinformation, uh, some of which is, I think, not really malevolent, it's just misinformed, but some of which really is intended uh, to be disruptive, and some of it spilling over from previous negative attitudes about vaccines that frankly are themselves based upon misunderstandings of the facts. So yeah, people are hearing this from all directions, and particularly people of color who have already seen around them evidence of a healthcare system that is not equitable. Uh, why would they then expect when there's some new uh, challenge like a pandemic and people are saying, here's what you need to do, that that necessarily is in their best interest? 
African-Americans who remember Tuskegee, uh, where medical researchers in an utterly unethical way withheld treatment uh, to African-American men with syphilis over decades. Remember that and wonder why they should trust at this time that they're not being considered as guinea pigs. And those of us in the middle of the science can say, oh, no, look at the evidence here in those trials. You know, we made sure with a lot of effort that people of color were part of those trials. You can see yourself in that Pfizer trial, in that Moderna trial, in that J&J trial, and you can see that people like you also benefited substantially. But we're working against this constant barrage of other rumors. Oh, it's going to cause infertility. That was a big one, and I think it's still out there. Oh, it's uh, actually got a chip in it that is going to track you. Uh, I mean, these things are fanciful, to be sure, and yet they've gotten some traction through social media. And frankly, I don't think that hearing from me, uh, an old white guy who works for the government, that everything is fine is necessarily going to be reassuring uh, to people who have that sense of unease about what's going on. The only real success here to overcome vaccine hesitancy is going to be for people to hear from voices they do trust, people they know in their own community, people who are part of their life experience, people in the church. So, Jim, I'm delighted that you're working with other church leaders about ways in which those voices, which are trusted and which could make a big difference in this circumstance, can be activated, empowered, given the information they need. We're not trying to turn the church into a bunch of salespeople, but if this is an opportunity to save lives, and it is, that seems like something that the love your neighbor <laughs> views of the church uh, are a very good match for. Well, as you know, and you've already been helpful to this effort, there isn't many new multi-faith efforts in progress now to organize houses of worship to be vaccination sites, distribution centers, and for faith communities and leaders to help with this essential, what I'd call trust messaging for these vaccines. And as you rightly point out, this effort is especially important for black churches to build trust in their communities who have faced a history of medical experimentation, which you name against their will. So my, our hope, as you know, is how faith communities can help provide sites, new sites, particularly getting the people who aren't gotten to by Walgreens or CVS or stadiums or hospitals, but, but also to, to, to be messengers of trust that these vaccinations can and must be trusted. So you, you as a person of faith, I think, sense the possibility of the faith community offering our role, our part, to help with this as much as we possibly can. How can we best help, do you think, with this? Well, I love the fact that you're talking up this opportunity and that church leaders are thinking about ways in which they can not only be effective spokespeople uh, for the importance of vaccines as lifesavers, but also they might offer their own facilities, their own houses of worship uh, as a location for immunizations to happen. That would make a huge difference. The other plans uh, that are out there are also important. You mentioned pharmacies and uh, you know sports stadiums. But I think those won't necessarily have that sort of welcoming feel uh, to people who are a little distrustful of what's going on here. And plus, it's also the case, I've recently looked at maps of urban areas to say where are the pharmacies 
And, you know, there are pharmacy deserts in the places where people at the highest risk uh, tend to live, those who are already taking an incredibly heavy burden from COVID-19. The health disparities here are really disheartening to look at. And if we make the mistake with vaccinations that we make it even harder for those individuals to get access than the people like me who are at lower risk, we're really not doing our job as people who care about our neighbors. So houses of worship seems like a really good alternative. Jim, I'll be glad to do what I can to try to talk that up. Obviously, there'll be lots of issues there about how do you set up the logistics uh, so that you can be sure this is done properly. We know that people who've had their immunization like you did today need to be watched for 15 minutes to be sure they don't have some sort of allergic reaction. All of that's got to be carefully put in place. But I think that could be done. Uh, the distrust uh, often from, from black and brown people is not just about the history, but the inequities in our our medical systems that continue to exist and that then translates into vaccine distribution as well. So, so you, you have spoken to this very strongly and clearly and morally, and the NIH is trying to combat these inequities. How, how might we all advocate for more racially equitable distribution of vaccines, but also just for our medical health system generally? Well, we sure need to, um, NIH has an entire institute uh, called the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, which focuses specifically on this. But every one of our 27 institutes has some investments in research on health disparities. And we've understood through that a lot of the reasons that these things happen. We've cataloged uh, the various factors that make your zip code one of the strongest predictors of your lifespan, uh, which tells you that we are not an equitable society or that would not be the case. What we have not done enough of, I think, is to pilot interventions where you don't just catalog the reasons, you try to change that system. And that's something we at NIH are now pushing a lot harder on. I think the events of the last year, the killing of George Floyd and other related episodes uh, woke up uh, some of the more complacent parts uh, of America to the fact that systemic racism is a reality and that in order for this to be addressed, that's going to take all of us and that the health consequences are really serious. And NIH, I think, wants to step up our game in terms of the way in which we approach this from being more of a cataloger of the causes uh, to an intervener to try to see what we could do to change those outcomes. That's a really hard thing to do, but it's time. Yes. Yeah, people, somebody once said to me, uh, who was a little skeptical uh, a couple of years ago, you know, you at NIH, you study health disparities. All you really do is admire the problem. <laughs> No, that's not right. But okay, I, I heard it. And it does seem like we got to get a little past being an observer. We got to do something more than that. So not just analyze, but intervene in terms of racial equity. That's a very powerful commitment. You made a powerful point with the faith leaders that I'm never going to forget. We were talking about all the conspiracy theories and uh, you know, disinformation and all the rest going around and how things like mask wearing 
and vaccines have been politicized. <laughs> and you said this, you said, uh, wearing masks is not a political statement. It's a love statement and a neighbor statement. Unpack that for me. Well, absolutely. It is one of the strangest and most heartbreaking aspects of the past year that the simplest form of saving lives, uh, of protecting people from terrible illness, namely wearing a mask uh, when you're outside and not in your own home, it has turned into a statement that people have interpreted as reflecting your political party, um, that the mask seems like it is also an invasion of your freedom. We have had a terrible time, I think, getting across the idea that, no, this is love your neighbor in a very specific way. You may well be that person who's infected with COVID-19 and you don't know it. And you therefore are the potential super spreader to the people around you. And the mask keeps that from happening at a pretty darn efficient level. So how can you defend the fact that you're not going to wear one uh, because of all these other arguments? I think, yeah, the mask is basically, it's a life-saving medical device. And it's a statement of loving your neighbor. If we could have gone there right at the beginning of this and not had the whole enterprise become so political, we probably would have saved tens of thousands of lives. The way you are, you are applying all the, all the wonderful uh, resources of science to this imperative to love our neighbor, that's the powerful connection that I see. How we can apply all of the science, which is remarkable, to the simple, basic commandment in all of our faith traditions to love our neighbor. That's that's where the power here, I and think, could really regardless come. Regardless of what political party or other perspective people have, I think fundamentally we all understand that that's part of our calling is to love our neighbors, uh, to try to reach out to those who are less fortunate, uh, to try to heal the suffering. If we could just strip away some of the other layers on top of that, many of which have gotten really hard-edged uh, and get down to that fundamental about what it means to be a human, uh, then we'd be in a better place. And I know that sounds pretty darn naive in this current moment in the history of our country, but I'm still just enough of an optimist and enough of a believer uh, to think that we could get there. Well, optimism and b believing is really a, a powerful contrast. There's some, sometimes optimism is just looking in the bright side of life. But hope is, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu taught me a long time ago, in South Africa, isn't just optimism, it's deeper. Uh, and, and, and you said to the failure, you said, well, let me start by saying, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in a lot of trouble. You back to the psalm, you keep going back, back to it. Say it, tell us, quote that psalm, what it means to you in these days. What does Psalm 46, what's being said to us here? Tell us what it says. Oh, uh, well, yeah, let me read the whole first three verses. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Well, if God can be a refuge and strength in that kind of trouble, what's a little COVID-19? I know this is a reassuring statement of just how much God's strength and power can be brought to bear on our troubles at a time like this. And you're going back to that psalm a lot right now. 
I am indeed. <laughs> Psalm 46 is my favorite for this particular time we're in. So hope comes from that, not just looking at the bright side of life, but believing. Like the text says, faith is the substance, in Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You're going to that psalm because that psalm speaks to where we are right now. It's belief, not just optimism. Well, uh, you're a person of faith, and you've been uh, personally able to hold on to some hope during this very troubling time. Now you're the director of NIH and a, and a public health figure that we all listen to and our political leaders are turning to. And I wonder, though, in a time like this, with that psalm on our hearts and in our minds, if you might, closing this conversation even off, closing our time off here in a word of prayer, prayer for our nation at a time like this. Would you pray for us? I'd be honored to, Jim. Dear Heavenly Father, we do see across our nation a great cry coming from those who are suffering, people who've lost loved ones, people who are themselves sick with this terrible virus, people who, whose economic distress seems to grow by the day because of all the consequences of what this has done to themselves, their families, their communities. We just pray for your comfort to surround all of these people in the midst of this distress. Yes, God is our refuge and strength. We claim that. We know that you have offered that as a means of our comfort in a time of trouble. And Lord, we are in a time of trouble. But we also give you thanks for the way in which so many heroes have arisen to tackle this unprecedented challenge. All those who put themselves in harm's way to take care of the sick, not worrying whether, in fact, that might be a risk to themselves. And thank you for the heroes who have labored in the scientific world to bring us to this point where we do have vaccines and we do have treatments and we do have ways of doing testing. And we are getting those out there to people who need them at an unprecedented speed. And thank you for the way in which they have dedicated themselves to this without worrying <clears throat> about who's going to get the credit. But we also know we are still in the dark part of this difficult era, and we know that that means all of us have to maintain this sense of strength and courage. And we know that that's what you call us to, uh, be strong and courageous <laughs> in Joshua. We have to remember that that is our calling and not to be fearful. And back again to Timothy, Timothy that you gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Please fill us with that kind of sense of calling, even at a time like this, and help us, as we sometimes do in difficult moments, to learn really profound lessons about who we are and who you are and how we can, in fact, love our neighbors in new and giving ways, because there's so many needs out there. Thank you for the time that Jim and I have had to have this conversation. Thank you for all who have listened. May people be in some way encouraged by this. And may we figure out, with God's grace, how we're going to get through this and have a chance once again to be in places where we can throw our arms around each other, visit with our families, and never again take those things for granted. I'm going to ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Francis. To hear more from Dr. Francis Collins, follow him 
on Twitter at NIH Director, Twitter at NIH Director. And for more information about the NIH COVID-19 work, go to covid19.nih.gov. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you for the soul of a nation. Yeah.